Good evening. This is a special broadcast of Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. In tonight's program, Anna Marie Cox, editor of Wonkette, the gossipy political blog from Washington, D.C., joins blogger Mickey Kaus of Kaus Files to discuss everything from the future of the blogosphere to the role of satire in American politics, as well as Cox's upcoming novel, Dog Days. Miss Cox is known for her unabashed style and irreverence, and she provides the lowdown on life inside the Beltway. My name is Mickey Kaus. I write a blog for Slate.com. In 2003, a friend of mine who is a, um, a big-time Reagan Republican uh, wrote me an email saying, Mick, who is this woman who does the antic muse? Where does she work? Or is the site the work? I asked because I just read her for the first time, and as Rick Bragg would say, she's something. I happen to know that the writer for the Antic Muse was my friend Anna Marie Cox, who uh, I'd known for a few years. And soon enough, Nick Denton, the czar of the Gawker media empire, spotted her also and had the same reaction, that she's something, and uh, hired her to write Wonkette, and the rest is history. Wonkette is is certainly one of the most uh, famous blogs around, and that's saying something because there are about 2.5 million blogs. Uh, there are all sorts of Washington rituals like the gridiron dinner and the correspondence dinner that Washington takes very, very seriously, but they're really lame, pathetic events, and there's nobody who points them out. And that's one function that Wonkat performs. The other function is, the, uh, is she gets at something that most accounts of Washington miss. Uh, uh, so Wonkette is a total breath of fresh air in that she sees Washington for what it is. Uh, she sees things that people in Washington don't see. She's particularly valuable for people in Los Angeles. Los Angeles uh, is famously out of touch with Washington. Only on Wonkette can you read not only that the, the joke going around town about the Valerie Plame investigation is that Ari Fleischer testified for three hours and there's no way Ari Fleischer can testify for three hours without lying. So uh, he's in, in trouble for perjury. So if you read Wonkett, you really are almost up to speed with Washington in a way that was never possible before. Uh, so I look forward to talking to Anna, and I will take my churro. And uh, uh, When I was in Washington, in the Carter administration, it was swarming with liberals and idealistic people. It was sort of the place where where people went after college if you were ambitious instead of going to Hollywood or Wall Street, you went to Washington. And, and I have a feeling that, that that has all gone away. People who live in Washington claim that even the excitement of the Reagan era is gone. <laughs> uh, that it, uh, it's true, our president goes to bed at 10, so you know, he doesn't set much of a standard for us. I think Washington, I, it's still a place where you have to be at least a little idealistic to, to go there because the money isn't as good as it is in New York. The fame, you said that you're not going to get as famous as you would be if you came to L.A. You've got to believe in something. You know, believing and sacrificing pretty good part of your youth um, doing spectacularly unsexy work. And, and the payoff is that you, you know, have this appointment for life kind of if you make it. I mean, because once you make it inside that game, it is the permanent government. I mean, the people who flock to Washington, that cast of characters doesn't change from year to year. I mean, the fact that Judy Miller was the sexiest person in Washington in the 70s and the fact that she's, you know, still maybe in the top 20, um, probably, <laughs> you know, says a lot about that. Uh, don't you worry that you make Washington seem sexier than it really is? I mean, it's basically a bunch of married people with uh, Volkswagen Passats 
who were <laughs> trying to pay the mortgage. No? Um, well, actually, like I was going to quibble with like the, whether or not Washington is really is it this raw uh, lusting after sex, uh, money, and power. I think it's it's mostly lusting after money and power. The sex is just something that I like to pretend. Um, and you know, yeah, it, it does make things more interesting to imagine all the great sex that people must be having because they're so, you know, like uh, conflicted and um, and bottled up. But mostly, I think that people, I mean, they say that you know, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac, but it's just an aphrodisiac for more power um, in Washington. That's that's not the lesson of evolutionary psychology. <laughs> that's, of evolutionary that's why people have to come to Washington. They don't reproduce in the city. Men want power. <laughs> Men want power because in the environment of our evolution it translated into sex. And my experience uh, in the Clinton <laughs> years was there was actual sex going on. It was not, uh, this was not just for show. There is actual sex going on in Washington. I shouldn't be too flippant about it. Um, it is very much under the covers, as it were. Um, I was at the Bloomberg party, the, the party that everyone thinks is such an amazingly big deal um, in Washington, um, when really like it is just a bunch of C-list celebrities and a, and a chocolate fountain. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so I was standing around with a reporter from the Washington Post, and we were kind of sort of looking around, and this was last year, so the big gets for the Bloomberg party were the apprentice um, people. <laughs> so we were kind of, you know, watching that not fun little sideshow, and, uh, you know, he said, you know, the thing about Washington parties is that no one's going to get laid. And I said, no, the thing about Washington parties is that even if someone gets laid, it doesn't feel like they're going to get laid. I, I'm working on a theory that... Hollywood is more real than Washington because uh, Hollywood, th there's no pretense that it isn't all about sex, money, and power. Right. So that um, reduces the number, the, the, uh, the facade and the, the ability to hide behind the facade. So if you're actually having a fake affair <laughs> in Hollywood, you actually have to have sex. I mean, you can't <laughs> fake it. Whereas in, in, in Washington, you have all sorts of fake marriages and they can go on being fake because they're behind fake the affairs, veneer. I think. <laughs> Um, I, I think that's an astute observation. I, you know, you were mocking uh, very justly or just, and it, it is a bit uh, self-congratulatory to think that Washingtonians are playing some kind of deep game in all of their dealings with each other, and there's this very, very sophisticated political strategy at work. I mean, it's about as sophisticated as high school. You know, you, you want to invite X to the prom, maybe you'll ask why like just to get X jealous. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't work out. It's, it's very two plus. You can do that? <laughs> that explains my high school years. Uh, uh, no, I think that's right. It, here's my example of crudity is Bob Carey and Bill Clinton. Okay, Bob Carey was for national health care on the single-payer Canada model. Right. Uh, he attacked Bill Clinton's proposal because it wasn't left-wing enough. Then Bill Clinton was elected, and all of a sudden Bob Carey switches and attacks Bill Clinton from the right at his proposal is too socialistic. Obviously, Bob Kerry is just wants to get at Bill Clinton. I can't believe you had to go back like 12 years for that kind of anecdote. <laughs> I mean, like that is pretty much, that is the game, like every day. I mean, Hillary Clinton has been sort of perfecting that on a day-to-day on a -day basis as she gears up herself. Um, you know, palling around with Newt on the one hand, then rallying, you know, swinging her purse at, you know, move on speeches the next. Isn't she driving John McCain crazy? Isn't there a oh. brewing enmity between... Hillary and McCain because they're the obvious rivals. I don't think he can hate anyone as much as he hates Bush. I mean, like, that's that. I think he's, he's just going to be, you know, happy to, to fight against someone who's not going to accuse him of having a black baby, um, which I don't think Hillary's going to sink to. Although she has sink to a lot, um, I'm sure. Um, I think that that would be a fabulous race. I'm not sure who I would vote for in that matchup, but it, it would be a, a fun race to cover. Is that one of the nasty things that people accuse Karl Rove of? Because in the, the current scandal about Karl Rove, People are always saying, oh, he's mean, he's vicious. 
what's he done that's so mean? And why is he so mean? I mean, I, I accept that he is mean, but why, <laughs> why is he so mean? Um, well, there is, I mean, I mean, one of the things that, that, you know, the kind of conventional wisdom that is best not to check in too much is that in the South Carolina primary in 2004 against John McCain, um, there was a whispering campaign and also leaflets, I think, put on the cars at, at uh, churches the Sunday before the primary uh, that accused John McCain of having a, a black child, where he actually he adopted a, an orphan from Eastern Asia, I believe. Um, so he does actually have a, a child who's a different color than him and his wife. But it's, I mean, for all, I mean, we mo most of us would probably think of that as a good thing. Um, so then Carl Rove is supposedly behind that. I think uh, the, the thing that he did that I believe is pretty well documented, there was some like congressional office or, or maybe even like a state office in Texas. And he stole, the sta stole stationery from that state officer and put out a pamphlet in like uh, soup kitchens announcing free food and beer at this person's announcement for running for office. Um, <laughs> so who shows up at the free food and beer festival, but um, people who you wouldn't necessarily think of, you want to think of as your supporters. Um, he's a sophisticated guy, I guess, more, more, more so than what we were talking about. Those are pretty uh, maybe college-level dirty tricks rather than high school-level dirty tricks. He did actually, the other famous story about Karl Rove is, this, it's blurry, but he was the youngest ever college Republicans president, and somehow there's controversy about how he was elected to that post. The, uh, well, there's nothing more vicious than college Republican politics. Right. I mean, watch it. I mean, you go to USC, and it's beyond parody. Also, you know, he's just easier to hate than Bush. Bush is, like, pretty good at, like, kind of putting up this, like, you know, amicable guy. And also, everyone I know that's actually interacted with him seems to find him personable. On a, on a just a face-to-face -face level. Whereas like Karl Rove is like a giggling bully, you know? Like he's kind of mean and not funny and he's the fat kid who now has power. It's a bad combination. Uh, Rove is now of course in trouble and if we can get topical for a moment, uh, Wanquette has become so powerful that I get emails <laughs> reading your column with Pravda-like precision. <laughs> Uh, and I got this email just uh, today. I think that the rush to get Rove is indicative of the short lifespan that the Rove did it line was bound to have. Wanquette has been telling her readers that they've already accomplished what they wanted to with Rove, discrediting him, and it was time to let the Republicans stew in their own juices. That's not like her. She never lets go of anything. <laughs> so if you do let go of it, that must mean that you feel that the scandal is dying. Um. I actually don't think the scandal's dying. I just think that this is a case where finally, finally, the Democrats have, have an issue where the headline hurts them more than the explanation. Um, if you just say the headline, Chief White House aide identifies covert CIA agent, that sounds bad. If you explain it like, well, you know, she wasn't really covert and, you know, he didn't really leak her name. I mean, like, let the Republicans explain all the details. Like, let them get into the what it is kind of, you know, level of discussion, which they have. And, like, I just want them to keep doing that. Because in Washington, this is the other rule of Washington, as soon as you're on the side explaining, you're losing. And have the Democrats stepped on the story by all their little things like, let's take away his security clearance by Chuck Schumer I mean, getting you know, out there If I was a real day. political consultant, I wouldn't be here. I'd be getting paid lots more money and just be lecturing to a group of CEOs somewhere. So I don't know how good this advice is, but I do think the Democrats have, have, have maybe... I, I mean, I don't know if they've truly screwed it up, but I mean, calling for his resignation, I mean, definitely anytime you call for anyone's resignation, you look kind of like a whiner, I think. Um, it's better to just remind you, Bush um, now says that he's only going to fire someone if, if they've done something criminal. Um, he said he was going to bring higher standards than that to the office. Is he? Like, you leave it an open question, let them explain what the difference is. That would be my call if anyone wants to hire me to put together an ad campaign. Yeah.
It, in general, it seems the Democrats, I sort of get my rocks off by attacking Democrats. I'm a Democrat who <laughs> likes to attack Democrats, well, I admit it. That's an but odd admission. It's, but it's gotten tired. They're so <laughs> pathetic. There's no joy in, in even attacking them anymore. Yeah. Uh, do you feel that, and, and is that the sense in Washington, and how can they come back? You're a Democrat, I assume. How, what's your general advice to the I party? I would say I'm a liberal. Um, okay. I, they're so not interesting, I don't even want to like admit my affiliation. Um, it's no fun, you know, the horse is not just dead, but buried and flayed and looking at you with those eyes. Um, <laughs> Uh, so it's it's not as much fun to beat up on the Democrats as it can be. I mean, I it's funny because when Wonkett started, I actually had a lot of conservative um, fans. And I think because I started up during the height of the Democratic primary and there was just so much material of Democrats doing stupid things. And I actually often say that I feel like my jokes about Democrats are more heartfelt than my jokes about Republicans because when the people on my side disappoint me, I feel much more strongly. That's my excuse, too. Oh, yes. You're working on a novel about Washington. Uh, How's that going? <laughs> Why a novel? Um, okay, I am writing a novel, um, and it's going very slowly. I told my editor last time that um, writing a novel without ever having even really attempted fiction before is a little bit like getting just put at the starting line of a marathon and told to finish. Um, you, you spend the first 20 miles or so just kind of working out exactly what you're doing. And uh, by this time, I'm so tired, I can't even think straight. But it is getting done. And why, as for why a novel, I was in Washington um, during August of the campaign uh, last year. And in August, everyone kind of leaves town. And But because it's a campaign year, there was sort of the apparatus, the campaigns were still there. It was like being in a college town in the summer. You sort of are thrown in together with a bunch of people that maybe you normally wouldn't hang out with. Um, and you drink more than you would, and you stay out later than you would, you'd get into work later than you would. And the entire kind of like s social um, pressure chamber of a campaign put into a single month, and there's a lot of sleeping around, and there's a lot of rumors, and that fascinated me. And also that combination of, that combination that I think you have to have to, to work on a campaign, which is um, complete belief in what you're doing, and sort of total cravenness. Um, a willingness to kind of, uh, because you believe so much in what you're doing, you'll, you'll do anything to get it. And I think that that is a fascinating dynamic as well. And because I am mostly liberal, most of my friends that I worked on campaigns were working on the Kerry campaign. And they would talk about them doing a, doing a TV thing or putting a together talking points. And I would bring up some issue that I felt like Kerry was, you know, being a jerk about. And they'd be like, and they'd go, Fade the free world. <laughs> and I was just supposed to like, hey, come on, you know, he's going to be squishy about gay marriage because Fade the free world. Um, and it, it was not quite a joke. <laughs> um, it really was like the way that you could explain to yourself like why you were doing these things that maybe normally you would call yourself on. Well, it sort of explains why anybody would work for Kerry. <laughs> um, sorry, that slipped out. That was, um, the, now, you um, were the founder of Kerry Haters for Kerry, as I recall. I was a, a founder <laughs> of Kerry Haters for Kerry. <laughs> uh, uh, which th th they asked, actually, Kerry got asked about that. He said, sounds like a jolly place. <laughs> Um, which is a pretty good answer. Showing uh, a sense of humor he showed in no other really, occasion. Really, it, it was, it was, if, he'd been, if he'd been like that the whole campaign, he might have won. Um, as a blogger, are there any things, though, that you regret? Uh, do you regret uh, posting the exit polls on Election Day? No. <laughs> uh, no. Um, 
I, uh, I, I said my sort of standard line on this, and I think you know this, is that I'm a, somewhat of a cyber libertarian when it comes to issues like this, and I believe that information wants to be free. It's a good excuse, if nothing else. I also kind of figured, like, if I had them, like, then they were definitely getting out to people who were not very important. So why not let everyone have them? And I, I think that to the degree that I regret it, it gave fuel to a conspiracy on both sides, that there was something you know, funny about the exit polls and there was somehow a deliberate gaming of them in order to, to engineer some kind of outcome. The fact that both sides had this conflicting conspiracy theories about this probably says you know, more than I could. What, what do you think actually happened with the exit polls? Because I saw I've kept the, the messages on my answering machine saying, hey, it looks pretty good for Kerry. Um, I think the sample was probably screwed up, and I think that uh, it was all East Coast. I mean, they oversampled precincts that were already friendly to carry. I don't think it was an intentional, um, but it was, it was so sad. Like, I remember I was IMing with people in the carry headquarters, and, like, their, you know, sort of manic depressiveness that day was, was clinical. It was pretty bad. I thought you were going to answer that. Did you actually inform the public better than mainstream media? <laughs> oh, because please. you were the only, according, <laughs> according to this guy, mystery pollster, you were the only person to post that there were problems with the exit polls in nine states. Uh, a warning that was apparently leaked to you somehow from, from Exit Poll Central, but that Exit Poll Central <laughs> forgot to send to their member newspapers. Right. So readers of Wonkette were actually better informed about exit polls than were the editors of the Washington Post who were furious the next day that they hadn't been told about these problems. That's because they weren't reading you. I, I'm also sure they must have not reading, been reading their email. I mean, that email also seemed not widely circulated, but it was definitely sort of in the ether. Um, one of the reasons I feel comfortable about having published the exit polls is that I said very strongly every time I referred to them that these are, these are exit polls. These are not, you know, these predict, it's like when you, if you take a snapshot of a race you know, just because someone's ahead at that first curve doesn't mean that they're going to be ahead the entire time. It means at this particular moment, like, this is what we know. I mean, it's, it, that's, exit polls are a very imperfect science. It's like a you know, blind person taking a picture of the race. I mean, if we're going to continue the metaphor, which I love to do. I'll figure out a way to extend it in a bit. But you look like you had a question. There are few things sexier than exit polls, but let's On election try. day, there's nothing sexier than an that's exit true. poll. That's true. That's um, true. Sex is the missing explanatory variable for a lot of what happens in Washington. <laughs> it certainly was in the Clinton administration. The important uh, word being missing. Yeah. Um, I assume your novel has a hero. Who, who that actually <laughs> exists in Washington do you admire and, and why? I think it's almost something cliche, but I really like John McCain. Uh, he, I don't agree with him on a bunch of different things, but um, he is candid to a fault. <laughs> Um, except for the reporters, like, but I don't think it's a calculation on his part that reporters love that. I think he's just always been that way. Isn't he in love with his own image? I mean, he'll and he'll like, oh, other people in Washington aren't. I mean, <laughs> if you're gonna uh, if you're gonna put that down as a barrier, then I can't say anybody that I like. I'm in love with my image. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm playing devil's advocate. His misguided campaign finance reform will result in bloggers like you and me being regulated by the Federal Election Commission. And uh, I, I, that is true. And I, like I said, there's all these positions he has that I disagree with. But I remember, like, I have my personal McCain story, which is that uh, on the day of inauguration, uh, we both did IMIS. And because he's a senator, he got, had a limo come to get him. Um, and because I'm a blogger, they made me walk. I was, so I was actually in the green room and, like, sweating because I'd worn all these layers. And I was, like, peeling off my clothes. And he was like, can, can I help you? Are you, are you okay? And I said, no, I just had to walk over here from my hotel and da-da-da. Uh, he said, they sent me a limo. I said, well, of course they did. He said, yes, it's actually, I think it's seat 16. <laughs> and it was like an SUV limo. And so the deal he made was that he would give me a ride if I never told anybody about his ridiculous SUV limo. 
um, which I don't can't believe he really wanted me to swear by. You're a cheap date. Yeah, I know. Um, one limo ride, one SUV And then also, like, oh, the, the sort of serious part of the story is that um, we went up talking about Iraq because he had the Gitmo allegations had come up, and we were talking about all these sort of how things weren't going very well in the war on terror. And I said, uh, in Iraq, um, uh, I guess we're fighting to a draw. And then he said, I wish it were a draw, um, which is a candidness that is frightening from a senator, really. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I had to respect that. From that him. is sort of frightening. Doesn't it alarm you that he doesn't say that when the cameras are rolling? Yeah, but I can't believe I'm the only reporter he's said it in front of. But um, it would be nice if he could get quoted somewhere. I guess I just did it. Um, although I think that also it was the kind of tossed off thing that it's hard to sort of make a whole story about. But then again, we've made whole stories about um, leaks that didn't happen. And so bloggers have that power, definitely. If I start blogging about this tomorrow, maybe I'll get McCain in trouble. Uh, Michael Kinsley, who works now for the LA Times, wrote th this very week, what does it take in Washington to be so thoroughly discredited that nobody cares what you think? <laughs> and his example, which I don't think was a very good example, was Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich is still respected even though uh, you know, he left office in, in, in the course of a, of a, of a scandal and uh, managed to lose his speakership in four years. Uh, but there must be other people in Washington who you loathe who are sort of negative role models. Can you offer any of them? Oh, God, I hate so many people. <laughs> oh, God, that would take a, a long, long time. Again, like, if we're going to start barring people, if we're going to start, like, putting people on that list just because they're hypocrites, it's going to be the entire cast of characters in Washington. I believe in hypocrisy. I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's, it's, a, it's a way we get through life. Um, Let's see, who do I really hate? It's funny because I really hate people that, that are not even on the radar and not worth hating. People always ask me what blogs I read too and I have to fess up that I actually read mainly conservative blogs because I, there's some kind of friction that, that I find oddly pleasurable. Uh, when I'm reading someone who I so thoroughly disagree with, it just makes my teeth grind. Um, but it, it, it's energizing somehow. I also only watch Fox News. Um, but <laughs> Because I'm not really looking for news. <laughs> um, they, have better, they have hotter anchors and better graphics, and you know, uh, they sort of change their headlines pretty frequently. And, but so, like other people, like Michelle Malkin, you know. But like these are like cartoon characters to hate. I mean, I can't think of any people who I really dis find distasteful. Um, you know, it, it's again like I can get upset about people so easily that it's probably a bad question to ask me. But you don't hate George Bush the way a lot of people out here do. Yeah, I don't. You know, I disagree pretty violently with a lot of his policies, and the things that he says and does can can excite me into fits of rage. Um, but I think that the the kind of Bush sort of you know Bush's Hitler you know vein of hatred, it's not even that it doesn't move the dialogue along, um, which it doesn't. <laughs> um, it's that it turns him into a cartoon character, and he's much worse than that. I mean, he's much more frightening than a cartoon character. Uh, so anybody who has any uh, questions uh, should uh, raise their hand and the mic will come to you. Yes. We all know that when blogging started a short time ago, everyone considered it like a personal diary type of thing. Uh, then we had the phase where there was news that the traditional news outlets would not break and that bloggers broke and eventually traditional news outlets, business leaders, politicians had to acknowledge the truth of certain things broken by the blogs. What is the meaning now? And then they all hoped they'd go away. 
Um, you perhaps are in a great position to tell us, what does it mean now that you have something like Gawker Media and that there is now somewhat of a media establishment for blogs? Talk to us about what that means. <laughs> I don't think it means anything good. I, I, in fact, I've been to saturation before. Um, author will quote self. Um, I think that, that for better or for worse, that you know, blogging is becoming a, a lot like mainstream media in both good and bad ways. And in the worst way, it's becoming pack-driven, selfish, cliquish, and, and more concerned with its own sort of advancement than anything else. Um, that can be wonderfully profitable, and so I shouldn't complain. Um, but it also can lead to sort of the same journalistic mistakes that or errors of judgment that happen in mainstream media. Uh, one thing I, I do kind of want to quibble on with what you, the sort of premise you laid out is very few bloggers have actually broken a story. Um, mostly what bloggers are really good at doing, or for better or for worse, is calling attention to stories that already are out there and sort of making people pay attention to them. Um, when they do try to break news, I'm not sure if they do such a good job. The event that occasioned the observation about how blogging was becoming a lot like mainstream media was when the Powerline blog, which is the blog that became kind of a clearinghouse on information about the, the faked uh, memos. That the in the rather, fake Bush National Guard memo. Um, was convinced during the, the Terry Schiavo vigil um, that this talking points memorandum that had gone out on the Hill could not possibly be the work of Republicans because it was way too crude. Um, they misspelled a word. Apparently, Republicans, you know, have better spell check than Democrats. Um, and they sort of hammered on this for a while. And, and they wanted it to be true so much. They wanted this memo to be actually be a Democrat dirty trick so badly, they kind of let themselves get led astray, which I think what happens to the mainstream media all the time. I got slightly led astray on that one, too. Uh, that was a case of pe people not knowing Washington culture because they said, well, this can't be a staff memo. There was no letterhead. Yeah. And if you've ever worked on the Hill, I mean, people churn out memos without letterheads all the time. They're floating everywhere. And so, so. They, did, they, they kind of refused to take the path of least resistance on that. Like the easiest explanation for this memo was that it was a Republican talking points memo, but no. And so they invented this elaborate framework for why it couldn't be. Anyway, um, I, that didn't precisely answer your question, but I hope you, I gave you something to think about. Hey, Anna, I, have a, I got in an argument with a Republican friend about you, and, and he wanted to insult you. So okay. he, he said, well, she's just, she's just a satirist, <laughs> which I thought was actually um, not an That's insult. That's not an insult at all. That's uh, you know, we live in very absurd times, and I think absurdity leads to satire. Do you think we live in a golden age of satire right now? We live in a golden age for targets of satire, that's for sure. <laughs> um, I've, I've said before, I mean, like, Washington is a target-rich environment for what I do. Um, and it doesn't have, they don't have to be Republicans or Democrats. Um, some of it's the ridiculousness that will make me sob into my pillow at night, but that's what the bourbon's for. I Could you comment on Patriot Act renewal and national ID cards? Um, I will beg off my resume as a wonk first and say that I don't quite know enough to say something intelligent about that, but of course I won't let that stop me. When I was searching for humorous things to say about the London bombing, uh, internet time has sped up the sort of lapse between when something tragic happens and when you can make fun of it. Um, it used to be, I think, the rule of thumb. But I remember when I worked at Suck, which was sort of the, the precursor to Wonka in many ways, we had decided that it was a day. <laughs> uh, one of the things, that, it's not exactly humorous, um, but I was like, how the London bombings will change your life. And uh, one of the top one was going to be Patriot Act 2. <laughs> Here we come. Um, I think that, you know, fear is a great motivator and that we people are willing to sacrifice a lot in order to feel safe. Whether or not Patriot Act makes you safe, open question. Yeah.
Oh, we're done. We're done. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Thanks to Anna Marie Cox. You've been listening to a special broadcast of Zocalo, a conversation with Anna Marie Cox and Mickey Kaus. The Los Angeles Public Library and Zocalo present this monthly lecture series. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California, sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo is made possible by Semper Law Group, Washington Mutual, and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles. For more information or to listen to past shows, please visit ZocaloLA.org. Thank you for joining us.